You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Kevin Heffernan. Hey, folks. Also back in the booth after far too long is Ms. Lisa Vandiver. Hey there, Mike. Great to be back. On this special episode of the Projection Booth, we are discussing the recent documentary from co-directors Josie Hess and Isabel Papard, Morgana. It is the story of Morgana Muses, a former housewife who found her path to self-expression and fulfillment via making personal and often adult films. As this is a relatively new film, we'll do our best not to spoil anything, but if you're too afraid, go on over to MorganaDocumentary.com, where you can see if the film is playing near you, or maybe if it's coming out on Blu-ray or streaming. Depends on when you're listening to this episode. So Lisa, what did you think of Morgana? I very much enjoyed it. We have shown most of her films over the years at Cinekink, and I've gotten to know her over those years. So it's sort of strange to see everything brought together in this cohesive whole piece, uh, knowing just bits of it. But I felt like it really gives a glimpse into her as a specific person and then opens it up wider to, you know, what is it to be a woman dealing with your sexuality, particularly later in life, and then opening that up and bringing that sexuality out into the world. And pretty unusual. How about you, Kevin? What'd you think? I thought it was a very moving and very intelligent documentary about a filmmaker that ultimately became a documentary about the filmmakers making a documentary about the filmmaker. (laughs) And as such, it was extremely responsible in the way that it portrayed the filmmaking process and worked through a lot of the ethical issues surrounding documentary filmmaking. And like Lisa, it was kind of old home week for me because uh, I knew a lot of the people who were on screen from the Feminist Porn Awards in Toronto and a couple of other places. So it was lovely to see everyone again. So I'm at very much a disadvantage because other than going to Cinekink a few times, completely out of the loop. This is my first time where I'm really connecting the name Petra Joy to the face, where I'm exposed to Morgana and the filmmaking. I was completely fresh to this experience. So me coming in without knowing Morgana and the filmmakers, I absolutely love this. And I really liked, Kevin, you mentioned this whole layers of filmmaking. I like how they did handle that and that we are getting behind the scenes and in front of the camera, both at the same time, the use of clips from Morgana's films of other films. I thought it was really well done. And this was just such a compelling story. And it's amazing that this documentary isn't three hours long. I think it's a, just a little bit North of an hour and man, they pack so much into this. Yeah. And bringing it all back to, you know, where she starts out in Australia, her childhood covering all that. And then her, 
not terribly happy marriage. And you can just see the repression, something that so many women can experience growing up to be a quote unquote good girl and just having to stuff that all down and the amount of misery that caused for her over decades. What was her term? Facade living? That everything is all about maintaining this crystalline outward appearance from the time she was small and her parents would make her perform for dinner guests and dress her all up and all this right. stuff. Yeah. The, the matching outfits with her brother. And yeah, you see that also like in the wedding pictures and just how everything is so polished and perfect and performative. We've come to expect certain things from a documentary, right? Where it's like, okay, this is where the person's at today. And then we're going to go into the past and then bring us up to where they were today. And then we might get like a third act of, and this is how things are going after this, or maybe title cards or something at the end where it's like, okay, and now this is what is happening to this person. And we get that very much that we are following that uh, same formula with this. But when we get to, here's the story of Morgana growing up, it's it's like a 10 minute monologue of her telling this story, but the filmmaking is so compelling and the use of, you were talking about the facades, the facade of the house and the little models of suburbia and her inside of this house and setting this house ablaze. It is just fantastic in that I'm riveted just listening to her story. Also, the clips from the erotic films are always obliquely commenting on where we are in the story or what the other person is saying. It's not just B-roll to show stuff from these erotic films that she has both made and performed in by other directors or uh, made herself. They're always very, very careful to have those clips add an extra emotional layer to what we're hearing. They're they're really remarkably judiciously and uh, artistically handled. And again, all in the service of this 72-minute running time, which is just extraordinary. And the way that it all loops back in on itself, you don't quite know what's, well, you don't really know unless you've seen the the final films of what's going on in the beginning. And that that comes back in the end to sort of illustrate where everything has culminated for her and you know, dealing with these issues over time, it sort of traces the typical celebrity biography of, you know, bringing it up to a high and then the low. And But where is she going to go from here? Well, and the idea that this process of reinvention is, is going to have to be constant throughout the rest of her life, that she's not magically transformed by this set of experiences. She develops the tools and the courage and the support network to do better for a while. What we, of course, see at the end of the film is her on this upward trend again. But but it's not a magical thing. You know, it's not a rags to riches story. This is stuff that she's going to be working on, uh, her artistic growth, her financial struggles, and the struggles with her health and her sense of herself in the world is going to be something that she's going to be working on constantly for the rest of her life. And that open-ended quality to the ending, I really thought was uh, very compelling. Yeah, you see her building those tools. And, you know, as an artist and a filmmaker, her work just gets stronger and stronger. And she reaches this point of 
he's out in the world and getting the acclaim. And then at a certain point, like many of us do, the next step, what is the next step? And how do we keep that going as artists and as people? And how are we feeding ourselves? You know, she has a great network of people around her. And you see the rapport with Josie Hess, her primary filmmaker, mm-hmm. and that they support her through that and how necessary that is. But she's also doing the inner explorations to keep herself in the world, really. Yeah, too many times we see the caterpillar turn into the cocoon, turn into the butterfly, the butterfly flies away, and that's it. And in this, it's like, it's really tough being a butterfly. You really need to maintain, and there's always the danger of suddenly cocooning yourself back up. And it's this whole idea of keeping her out in the world. And it's very important to me. I think there's this, I don't want to say subplot, but there's this movement of her to Berlin, where she feels like this is her home away from home. And it doesn't necessarily work out. And I think that's really important because then it does show us what you're talking about, where she does have this network and she is able to bring herself back out of that. Something that could be seen as another huge defeat for her, but she manages to survive that. And we see, like you said, she has those tools now where she can cope with something that could be seen as such a major setback. Well, it's incredibly stressful to be a performer in the public eye. That's one of the hardest and most emotionally stressful jobs a person can have. Coming out of your shell to become a high-profile person, especially someone who's sharing those incredibly intimate parts of herself that she is with, with a public. I mean, there's a reason that performers are susceptible to substance abuse, that it's really, really stressful. And they certainly give us a sense of that, the the sense that even if people are lining up to praise you, you can just see how exhausting it is. Sort of supporting herself as a professional artist, and there's that glam, glitzy phase where, and Josie touches upon this, and I knew her during this phase because that was when she was flying herself to New York for Cinecink. She was here for a couple of our festivals one year for her, uh, it's my birthday, I'll fly if I want to, mm-hmm. um, for her, you know, it's this beautiful bondage art piece documentary celebrating, you know, turning 50 and embracing her sexuality. And she was here and it seemed to be a very lavish thing for her. And she's very generous with everyone around her. And you think, oh, she just has all these resources. And then as we see, she was going through her divorce settlement. It just underscored for me, you know, everyone thinks that if, if you make porn or you make sex films or have sex film festivals, uh, that the money, money is just pouring in. And um, sadly, that is not the case. And uh, I know most of the people in the feminist ethical slash queer uh, porn world are, are not, not rolling in the money. So underscored that for me. I know None of them who do not have at least a second job. She's not just, and I I put just in quotation marks, she's not just out there showing her body and being this physical model of pornography. She's putting her fantasies out there. She's writing these things. She's performing in them. It's a lot more than just, and again, just in quotation marks, a body on screen that it is so personal and that she is 
owning her body and owning her fantasies. And I think that's another really great thing. And I don't know if I would have appreciated this movie as much when I was, say, 28 versus 48 because of her going through all of this as she's turning 47. Like you said, Lisa, we see her 50th birthday and beyond. And just this whole idea of people shouldn't be sexual once they reach a certain age. Once she has two children, she, you know, the, there's a comedian that says, you know, you shouldn't just hang up your vagina on a wall. There's this whole thing of women not expressing their sexuality, people of a certain age not expressing their sexuality, very Rubenesque women shouldn't show their sexuality. So there's this, all of these things she's fighting against, and that makes her even more compelling. And that she had felt at one point that her sexuality had died. And we see that in the first film, Duty Bound, where, you know, she even says she wasn't necessarily looking for sex so much as just a sense of touch and intimacy. And, you know, we get to that point where we just crave that human contact. But through this sexual encounter, which she then sort of recreates in the film Duty Bound, you see how that sexual encounter underscores the trust and connection she gets out of that. And that really feeds her growing as a person and as a sexual being. Yeah. Because there are too many people that just kind of carve that off and it's like, okay, I'm good. I've got my job. I've got my house. I've got the, you know, it's that facade living that you're talking about. And then just like, well, I don't need that part of my life. That's something that I can do without. But this really shows just how important that is and that she's going through these major changes. Like I said, at 47 years old is when she embarks on her her film career. And it's just like, wow, you know, even that she got a divorce at 45, there are some people where it's like, okay, yeah, I'm too old to go through resettlement, but that she is constantly going through all of these changes from 45, 47 into her fifties. It's just, it really makes me feel for her. And then you see scenes like when she's at a festival in Berlin and the man and woman, the young man and woman that are speaking to her and just how they're looking at her and realizing like, this is going to be me one day, that moment. I mean, it's such a small moment, but it's such a touching moment for me. That's the moment that I was thinking of when I, expressed how exhausting it must be to do what she does that kind of extraordinary emotional intensity and then of course then the next person in line is very likely to either elicit or demand a a similar kind of emotional engagement what's remarkable to me about her sexual arc is we were talking a minute ago about people who say well that part of my life is over There's a middle ground there, of course, in which people have figured out what works for them and they kind of stay in that comfort zone for the rest of the time that they are being sexual. And what we see her doing is constantly exploring uh, new avenues of sexual uh, expression, new avenues of fantasies. And some of them are are some of them are are quite dark. Uh, Some of them point up to her sense of emotional fragility and physical vulnerability. And that's what I meant when I said that the clips from the films are so judiciously and artistically chosen to add this additional layer of emotional resonance to her telling her story on the soundtrack. Right. I was noticing the the footage from the documentary 
breathtaking where you see her engaging with breath play with Karatia, um, who is a collaborator and I think also just a friend. And it definitely added the layer of having her depression and her suicidal thoughts. And Mm -hmm. also the breath play is a way to sort of engage in giving somebody else control over that. And so I'd seen the, the breathtaking film before, but seeing it in that context just gave it a whole layer of meaning for me. If folks are listening to this and just have to watch some of her films immediately, uh, quite a number of them are available through Shine Louise Houston's site, Pink Label TV, and a significant other, uh, six or seven other ones are available on uh, Petra Joy's Cinema Joy <laughs> website. So these films are, are readily available. If you are willing to support financially the work of these filmmakers, you're not going to find these on a tube site, for example. They are in active distribution, and they're really, really worth seeing. I took a look at a couple of them last night. Well, I am curious, coming to this as a stranger to Morgana and to these filmmakers, how was it How was it seeing this through your guys' eyes? Yeah, there's a, that aspect of Old Home Week, and it's like, oh, there's the Berlin Festival, and I know, I know that space, and I know the crowd, and I know the people. So it was hard to sort of separate myself from all that, and then having so, seen so many of the films, seeing the parts that we don't know from before, and just looping that all through it. It was just a great introduction to her, and then through her, we're seeing this larger movement of feminist porn, porn filmmakers, because there are several several other filmmakers she collaborates with. And in fact, I was trying to separate when I was looking through her pay- playlist of what things she had directed versus what she starred in and or was just a performer in. So so it's very hard to pull her out from that whole whole body of work. There's a wonderful uh, interview with Josie and Isabel where uh, Josie is, is talking about wanting to do her senior production project on pornography, a, a documentary on pornography, and that her, her professors just stomped all over that idea. And then she later figured out that one of her media production instructors uh, was Anna Brownfield, who is a very, very important mm-hmm. Australian feminist pornographer. And I guess at some point we'll probably want to talk about uh, the strange status of pornography in Australia. That's a whole other topic. But I was just delighted to see, once again, the the space from uh, the Feminist Porn Awards in Toronto. I was happy to see Ms. Naughty, right? You remember that wonderful Mm -hmm. dinner? We closed out the restaurant in Toronto. The story is so intense. The story is so emotionally compelling. Those celebratory moments of community and mutual support were much needed sort of as, as leavening uh, to some of uh, you know, the darker and more challenging aspects of the story. And then that takes it back to Petra Joy and her support of, you know, she would sponsor a prize every year at the Berlin Festival um, honoring feminist filmmakers. And that, that was what really gave Morgana her boost with that first film, Duty Bound. And the Petra took that on to sort of lift up other filmmakers. I wish that Petra was still producing somewhat ironically. Uh, she has stepped back from porn for many of the same reasons <laughs> that it's not particularly lucrative and she can 
you know, support herself better in a more vanilla position. Funny how that works. Mm-hmm. Yes. Very, very, very few uh, porn filmmakers and producer uh, producers or they have this secret underground Blofeld lair, you know, with armies of <laughs> color coded uniforms running around doing tasks for them in their effort to take over and degrade the world. You have piqued my interest about how pornography is seen or viewed or how the status is in Australia. Pornography does not necessarily enjoy protected legal status as speech in Australia in the same way that it can be defended on First Amendment grounds in the U.S. Legislative bodies as well as um, the Australian equivalent of the FCC, for example, which which are charged with regulating particular kinds of commerce regarding the communication industry, have been known to periodically put regulations into place that make the profitable distribution of sexually explicit material very difficult uh, with onerous technological burdens. The most effective way you can censor pornography is to make sure that payment processing is very, very difficult. And we have a huge problem with that in the U.S. But in Australia, that has been used to devastating effect uh, when uh, the adult industry moved online in the late 1990s. There are periodically laws passed either either in the country itself or in various regions of the country that forbid particular acts. Uh, for example, uh, fisting is illegal in Australia, and one of the people who briefly appears in this uh, film, Zara Stardust, was waging a one-woman war against this <laughs> band, certainly the, the last time uh, I saw her in, uh, in Toronto. And one of, the, one of the very, very best of the early porn sites on the Internet was a company in Australia called Abby Winters. And Abby Winters was run by a guy named David Gurian, and he would essentially farm out all the production duties to the women who were actually performing. So the women would perform in some scenes, shoot other scenes, you know, direct the action in other scenes. And it was a very sort of bubbly, upbeat sort of pornographic fantasy. It was, a, it was very sex positive and extremely sort of lighthearted. And the constabulary in Australia said that any sexually explicit representation that had women with smaller than a B cup had to be individually inspected to make sure it wasn't child pornography. I'd forgotten that. (laughs) Right. And so, and so, so the Abby Winters company, one of the most lucrative and really best pornographic ongoing concerns uh, moved to Amsterdam. They just, they just packed up and left, you know, but that's the level of, of harassment. uh, And that's the level of selective enforcement that people in Australia who uh, make or distribute or uh, exhibit or uh, retail in sexually explicit material have to put up with there. At least I don't want this conversation necessarily 
go too far astray, but I am very curious when it comes to your selections for Cynic Inc., where are you getting the majority of the films from? Is there a particular region, a country where uh, you get the majority of your stuff? Kind of varies over the years. More recently, a lot of it's coming out of Berlin. So it's like there's the whole Berlin school of adult filmmaking now. Um, San Francisco tends to be another big base. and uh, But really, it's representative all over. We tap into our alumni base, and so we have a lot of returning filmmakers. But we also you know, get our call for entries out over mainstream things like Film Freeway, uh, without a box, which is no more, you know, cause I like bringing new voices into the mix, but it really is all over with some, uh, prominent strains from those. What percentage of the people who submit to Cinekink are professional media makers at their day job? And what percentage are sort of avocational media mm. makers, either from, uh, a political background or some kind of artistic background that might not necessarily be drawing a paycheck on media making when they're not making movies that they would love for y'all to show. They aren't necessarily amateur filmmakers, but they aren't necessarily doing this as their day gig. Like we keep talking about people have their day job and then they do this out of their love, which is kind of indie filmmaking overall. Um, with this narrow niche. So um, the the thing for me, though, is how production values have increased over the years. Uh, when we first, first started doing Cinecink, you know, 20 years ago, um, it was if the content was there, if it was kinky, okay, we're going to show that. And, you know, we've been able to become much more selective in what we show and um, that the production values and just the sense of filmmaking literacy has uh improve greatly over time. Well, with the high-definition movie right. cameras on iPhones with the prime lenses and then freeware with which you can uh, mm-hmm. mimic something like Final Cut Pro or Adobe Premiere. People making things on their iPhones. Absolutely. <laughs> those, those have been pretty amazing, too. I don't know if you remember one of the award-winning films when we were last in, in Toronto was made entirely on an iPhone, and mm-hmm. it, this this was that first generation of iPhones that could really do uh, the serious uh, 1080p with uh, prime lenses and and tremendous depth of field and the ability to rack focus and all this other stuff. Uh, it's really kind of a revelation. So I mean, it's never been this easy to make your own erotic cinema, all you listeners out there. The problem is getting them out into the world. Then, fortunately, there are sites like Pink Label. And Erica Lust, where you can um, have them distribute your film. But in terms of, like for Cinekink, I'm trying to put together a streaming platform and the tools that are available to non-explicit filmmakers, uh, such as Vimeo, uh, the terms of service restrict any kind of explicit imagery. Uh, you have to turn to the porn world, unfortunately, which has its own issues in terms of what you can use your credit card for. Exactly. The paywall becomes uh, a huge problem when you enter adult content. Plus the tube sites just completely plagiarize and raid the media uh, uploads of basically any website that a bot could find explicit content on those two or three huge pay sites uh, run by, I can't, Manwin or MindGeek, I can't remember what they call themselves now. 
they'll just put your content up there. There it is. The the movie that you have spent four months making will go up on uh, a porn tube with a title like MILF Hanging in Bondage, right? And then (laughs) that's the Morgana, it's my birthday movie, which is like a great work of art, but, you know, nobody knows that because it's there with the sleazy title Mm -hmm. on it. Yeah, and from what I understand, it's just been getting worse and worse as far as the content restrictions. And Trump has his wall, but it's mostly the paywall that you're talking about. Exactly. I mean, we're looking at this with because Cynic Inc. was in March and we were about to go up and then this whole pandemic thing came. So as with most film festivals, you know, we mm-hmm. have to look at going virtual. But my main issue right now is most of the streaming sites process their money through Stripe, which is very anti-sex. I was at CatalystCon one year, and I can't remember if it was uh, Ned and Maggie Mayhem, but a, a couple that were making their explicit content actually had to devise their own proprietary payment system in order to sell their content online. Unfortunately, one of them was adroit enough with all this stuff <laughs> right. to be essentially jerry build their own payment platform, which is just, that's a skill set that you don't expect a filmmaker to need to have. I very much like that we find out at one point that Morgana is working in a sex boutique. And this is another one of these venues that has this long-standing, largely undeserved, reputation of being the sort of sleazy underbelly of the retail world when in fact adult shops are one of the most important places in which peer-to-peer sex education occurs and I, I really like that we we see her going to her job and we see her speaking with a customer at one point yeah, that she's continuing her educating others in this other venue. And um, you know, I, th- I think it was a good place for her to land. I just think it's interesting that the documentary uh, is enjoying premiere at several big festivals. Uh, we had on our, our eyes on it for the Sears Festival, but I know they wanted to sort of premiere in more more established venues. That's always been my approach with um, these sex-related uh, works that if they can premiere somewhere like a Sundance or whatever, you know, that's getting it out into the world. Whereas, you know, we're happy to take them on their next round because we don't, uh, we don't worry so much about premiere status. A film like Morgana is kind of preaching to the choir, to the Cinekink crowd. This is a film that can truly raise the consciousness of people if it is screened for a more diverse audience, an audience that might not be familiar uh, uh, with the kind of filmmaking that that they're talking about, that might not understand the possibility that such a kind of filmmaking could even exist. And so uh, I think it's a good move for everybody that this film gets as wide an audience initially as possible. Absolutely, because it can go out in the world and people stumble upon it and they learn the preachings of Morgana, and then when we show it the following year, her friends can show up and celebrate her in person. So maybe Cinekink 2021? Yeah, we're hoping so. Fingers crossed. (laughs) Yes. Hopefully we'll be back to uh, live venue events sometime soon. 
All right, we're going to take a break and play an interview with co-directors Josie Hess, Isabel Papard, and the subject of Morgana, Morgana Muses Herself. And we'll be back with that interview right after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Hey, do you like movies? Of course you do. You're listening to Mike White's phenomenal podcast, The Projection Booth. I'm here, however, to tell you about another movie-loving podcast, The Shannon List Picture Show. My name is Michael Byers, and the show was created by myself and my good buddy in filmmaking, Nick Richards, in 2016 as a way for him and I to stay connected and to keep movies in our lives. Premise is simple. Each of us composed a list of shame filled with movies we've either missed, had no interest in, or just feel the other one should have seen. We've covered a wide range of films, from Heather's, The Godfather, The Exorcist, You're the Hunter from the Future, Phantom Tollbooth, a slew of amazing Vinegar Syndrome titles, and some that are not so good, plus our massive Rocky episode that features a new interview with Lloyd Kaufman himself talking about his friendship with John G. Abelson. And I personally can't wait for you to hear us and join the fight to keep film culture alive. You can find our show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and, of course, SoundCloud. What is this whole chain of events that brings us to having this documentary, Morgana, out there in the festival circuit now, being able to to finally see this movie, because I've been following it on, uh, I think it was Kickstarter for a while now, and I'm so glad to finally be able to see it. Yeah, well, thank you so much for supporting. That was like super exciting to get your DM. We were like, oh, this guy. Wow. Um, should I take this one, guys? I'm Josie, so maybe I should start. Yes, I think with so. Where- are you the hub? Maybe the hub, I think so. Or like, at least it feels like maybe I feel like I'm the protagonist some, <laughs> sometimes. It all kind of started because I had been in film school. I had tried to make a documentary about female pleasure and I thought I could make a film where I could film a por- like a porn being made. And obviously my teachers were like, no, no, you can't do that. I realized that porn was somewhat illegal in Australia and that led me to try to start interning on porn films, which is how I ended up colliding with Morgana. One of my lecturers ended up being a feminist pornographer, Anna Brownfield. And Morgana and I met on the, I think it was the casting for a call for help. 
and we planned it abroad. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. We had like a uh, not quite open, but somewhat open casting, and um, we bonded over stationary and organizational skills, which was really nice. As soon as I saw her pull out a highlighter pen, I knew she was the one that I wanted to work with. I said to Anna, if ever we need an assistant, I'd like Josie to be the one to be called upon. And I think that's when Josie found out that I was going to do a 50th birthday present for myself, which was to be installed into a giant Phoenix bondage installation. And I wanted her to shoot it for me. And I was, I think I was like 23 or 24. And I, I definitely, like I'd been working with amazing Isabel Peppard. Like it was my dream. We'd been working on, like we met at a punk gig to do with Monster Fest, which is like a little genre festival in Melbourne. And then Iz and I had been, or Isabel and I had been sort of working a little bit on, I've been helping her on some of her projects. I knew she was an, an incredible director because she'd had her, um, and I'm sure she'll tell you all about her film Butterflies, but I, I was so like enamored with her that I was like, I cannot do this myself. So we thought Isabel might maybe be interested in doing the project instead. I'd just come off the back of my short film um, and I met Josie. I think we first met at a Monster Fest closing night party. (laughs) Um, And I remember being at the bar and this really hot chick approached me. Um, and said, I really loved your film. And I was like, oh, really? And it's like, um, you know, I, I was like, oh, I couldn't believe it. And then um, and we had a little bit of a chat, and I think the night got really dry. I think the Soska sisters were actually there that yeah. year. And so I think I had just come back from either Stitches or Annecy um, and I came straight back to Australia. I was in Monster Fest. I was like, woo, victory lap, getting really drunk. I met you. And then um, – then me and Josie met again at a punk gig in Melbourne and we're like, oh, we're both film people, we're both punk girls. Um, and I think that like we were both – at the time I was looking for a producer and Josie was doing like a lot of producing and there wasn't heaps of interesting kind of producers in Australia. So we started being like, okay, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And then um, Josie was working with Morgana at the same time and, um, yeah, they approached me to direct this installation which was the her 50th birthday present to herself and through I didn't direct it Morgana ended up directing it but I kind of produced it um, and Josie shot it and we had a DP as well but then through doing that project um, I found out about Morgana's story I was found out two years before she'd been a housewife um, in rural Australia and now she was doing this incredible 50th birthday bondage installation. So me and Josie, I guess we were just really excited about Morgana. Sorry, Morgana, I know you're here, so it's weird talking about you. <laughs> but we were really excited about her as a character and, um, and her story, like this huge transformation, like how did she get to be, you know, from this person to kind of this person and what were the challenges of that and I was really attracted to I guess you know in my generation growing up I hadn't seen a lot of you know women in their 50s with a visual a visible sexuality as characters in um in you know the media um in a way that you know they had agency and they weren't the butt of a joke you know um and uh, you know so I, I think that I was really interested in sexuality being such a big part of this journey so yeah I guess me and Josie did a lot of fast talking and we were like oh this is <laughs> interesting let's make um we were going to initially make a short film about it you know a calling card short for our production company <laughs> 
Um, and um, it was just going to be the housewife to the Phoenix story. Um, and we were like, this is, you know, a great short. We can end it with this epic installation. You know, we'll make a short documentary, which will open doors for us to make other work. And then five years down the track, um, <laughs> The story kept evolving and changing. Morgana as a character was evolving. She was doing really interesting work um, that, you know, fed into our creative processes. Her and Josie were doing more collaboration as well. And it just, you know, Morgana just brought us on this journey that, um, you know, evolved into this feature that we really couldn't have imagined at the start. When did you make your first adult feature or first adult short? My first adult short was in 2012. Um, and it was just by purely by accident. Two years after my asked after I'd asked for a divorce and I was turning forty eight, I came across a call out for submissions for the Petra Joy Award, which was a UK based competition for first time filmmaker erotic film makers. And I had this little idea and I thought, I'll make the film. So I approached the escort that I was booking regularly at that stage to ask if he would um, co-perform with me, and he said yes. We submitted the film, and much to our surprise and delight, it won the competition. Petra Joy called me and said, would you consider making more films like that? Basically, yeah, how I got my start. So that was 2012. By 2014, how many movies had you made? And the Phoenix installation was the fifth. And what was your response when Isabel and Josie come to you and say, we want to make a, a short film at that point about you? I was incredulous. I was thinking, who on earth would want to have a story about me, film a story about me? I didn't consider myself to be an interesting subject, but they convinced me and and, and it was a blast. Josie, you said that you wanted to do something about porn when you were in college. And I'm curious, what is your relationship with porn and especially the, the weird, complicated relationship that you have with it because it's, it's illegal in Australia? Is that right? Well, yeah, it's, it's a gray area. Basically, our classification system and our legal situation just makes it quite gray. So you, you can, you can film yourself having sex, but it's the intent to distribute, I believe, is where it becomes problematic. Yeah, I don't know. I've always watched porn. I grew up in like a hippie household. Like sexuality was just like not a non-issue. And so I grew up going, I went, you know, I always wanted to be a filmmaker. I went to film school, but I kind of thought that I would be able to just like step out of, you know, graduation and, and go into sort of like an epic porn feature. Like I'd be able to make pirates or something in Australia, but that is just not, <laughs> not the case here at all. Um, I had this like soup, like idea that, yeah, we had this American, Americanized system. So when I started actually looking into it, I was like, oh my God, this is like not at all what I thought it was going to be. But then I found in the lacking a giant sort of um, capitalistic system, we do have this incredible ethical and feminist porn community in Australia. And that's what I, like I did intern on a few mainstream porn films in Australia, but then I found Anna and Morgana and I was like, holy shit, these are my people. They are making the exact films. Like I didn't even know this kind of porn could exist at that stage. And I was just like, wow, this is something I want to work on and put my skills as a filmmaker into because I really think that this should exist. Isabel, how soon after you and Josie decide that you want to make this short, do you realize, no, this isn't just a short. We need to make a feature out of this. What happened is that Morgana 
kept traveling um, and, and you know, it was a combination. And she was traveling with Josie, so Josie was able to kind of go and, you know, capture moments, you know, of her story. And I think as her story um, evolved um, in terms of her creative output, which was a huge inspiration to us, I think that we saw this opportunity of that she's almost telling her life story within these films and the way that the films are changing are kind of like this mirror um, of how she's changing as a character. Um, so it's almost like this personal history told by porn, but I can't really pinpoint an exact moment in the process. I don't know that it was ever like, oh, my God, now it's just tipped over into a feature, but I definitely remember like in 2014 – we were still filming like it was going to be a short. But then in 2015, Morgana, you decided to move to Berlin. And I think me and Iz at that point were just Berlin, like, yeah. we're just going to keep filming. I don't think we still were like, oh, this is 100% a feature. But, yeah, I think after we got back from your two trips to Europe, plus you moved there, I think that's when we were like, oh, there is quite a lot of footage. Um, maybe we should start sifting through this and see see what could be made. That first cut that remember we showed mm-hmm. that to Katrina, which was like this is a feature, feature. That cut. 2015. Yeah, I think that was like late 2015. Right. <laughs> we yeah. had like a million cuts, so we've all done. Cuts. We've all had a go. <laughs> yeah. How did you have the funding to go over to uh, Berlin to follow Morgana over to Berlin a few times? Well, we yeah we didn't like so Morgana. I, I was working for Morgana. I was using my settlement fee money, the, the money that I got from my marriage settlement, and I employed Josie to come and I would fly her over uh, so she can join me and to do the filming. Yeah, so we went and we made, I think we shot three films for Mugs while we were overseas and did all the editing, shooting. Yes. Mug was able to pay for us to do that. So you're not only are you making the documentary, but you're also working on films at the same time. Because I was working for Mog, I was very conscious, and this was something Iz and I, like, we would have Skypes, and I'd be like, oh, I've got to put Morgana's work first. So that's why the coverage in Europe is, like, a little patchy, because, again, I was primarily there working for Morgana, but she knew at the same time I was picking up extra footage for our film because we weren't sure where it was going. So, yeah, it was a really – it was an interesting juggling act of trying to do the right thing by Mog and making sure I was doing all the job there um, while simultaneously trying to capture stuff on the side for us as well. Isabel, what's that like for you being back in Australia and almost working by proxy with uh, with Josie and Morgana being in Berlin? Uh, look, it was exciting because I'd get little bits of footage coming through. So it's kind of interesting to see, um, you know, I'd be waiting for them to come back so Josie could kind of show me what they've gotten. And then I was looking at how the story was developing. So it was kind of, you know, every time I remember being really excited every time new stuff would come through. I was like, oh, how does this add to the story? How does this add to the story? You know, it was quite ad hoc, I think, at that point. It's not like we had organized any particular, you know, I think later in life. Later in the production process, we got more and more organized with like what needs to be covered, how we're going to cover it, you know, as things went on, because we we're a first time documentary team as well. So we've never, you know, done a doco before. Um, so we were learning the whole way through, you know, just about coverage and what we need to get and how we need to get it and all that kind of stuff. So I'd say the overseas stuff was quite ad hoc, but 
then I would say that the films they made contributed so much as well to, um, you know, to the story. So Josie would send me these stills from like, like having my cake where, you know, where there's these whole body issues, which are part of Morgana's life story. And then there's this amazing film that they made about eating, you know, and it was just incredibly exciting, um, to see Morgana's and Josie's creative work feeding into our story and, um, how everything that they made was thematically linked, um, to, to the story that we were telling and some of the reasons we were interested in the story in the first place. Morgana, were you ever tempted as a director to start directing your own documentary, to to start directing Josie uh, in how she should be filming you? It was a collaboration. Josie would explain to me what can and can't work with the film, so I would always listen to her and she would listen to what my story was and what I wanted portrayed and depicted on film and she would let me know if it was able to work so the main thing we couldn't do mog was you just kept asking for like helicopter shots and i'd be like we cannot we cannot do that because it was well before (laughs) drones were a thing but thank god because otherwise i think all of our films would have been like you know the drone saturation where it's just like everybody's got an overhead of every single city so i think maybe it was a good thing we didn't have drones back then yeah, I'd say um, Morgana was outside, um, you know, she wasn't any part of the directing process. And I think that we really wanted, um, you know, to show her the complete work of art, so to speak, you know, rather than like showing bits and pieces. But we did want to get her approval on the the rough cut before we um, locked it. Um, so, or the fine cut, sorry. So we didn't want any anything in there that would make her really uncomfortable, that would have, um, you know, negative ramifications in her personal life. Um, you know, we felt that it was the ethical thing to do to open that edit to her before we locked. Um, so that was kind of I think that's where we it wasn't so much about creative input but it was more like on a personal level this film's about you do you have any major issues with it um so we opened that up but I think that because Josie and Morgana have such a close relationship you know there was a lot of trust there which we're really grateful for it's one thing to make your own films to star in your own films but it's another thing to go beyond that and to share so much of the the personal life that is outside of the films the one thing i did find difficult with the um the actual documentary is not actually having control over it and i knew i had to trust josie and isabel with my story and and i did i did i trust them implicitly and it was very difficult not sometimes to just say, can I do this? Can I do this? <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, so it was all a matter of me learning to trust and putting my story in their hands and trusting that the right thing will be done, and it was. I kind of feel like, guys, and maybe maybe you guys might disagree, but it, it's like a film very much created in dialogue. Like we're all three of us like very much thinkers and like we debate and we talk and we're we're very quite open people with our how we're feeling about stuff so we definitely between the three of us concept it was all about checking in and I think a lot of that stuff actually might come from BDSM culture where you like aftercare and checking in and making sure everybody's feeling okay and that it's all you know this is how it's going and how are you feeling and I, I don't know it was like five years of having close really close friendship and relationship with these women and I think it was that closeness that allowed us to navigate these really mixed territories of like the ethics of filmmaking and documentary and what's best for Mog and all that kind of stuff. It was also 
a creative call and response between all of us. Um, you know, I think a lot of the experiences, Morgana had, you know, the things like the Phoenix that fed into how we treated her story with the miniatures and, you know, things that like, you know, Josie would do or things that Morgana would do would feed into things that I would do. So as well as like the kind of, you know, the friendships and the relationships, there was also this amazing kind of creative kind of round, um, table almost between all of us where we were kind of pinging off each other's ideas and visions, which is really interesting, I think. One of the things that I like the most about the film, you talked about how you're actually integrating in some of the uh, Morgana sexual films, but then you know, you're using that as a metaphor, but then you have your own metaphors that you're using in the documentary. The whole idea of the houses and Morgana staring out of the house and then her all covered in the ash. I mean, that is just wonderful. And I, I have to ask where, who came up with that? Where did the idea come from? Morgana is an incredibly visual filmmaker. And so when we kind of watched back, I think when we started, there was about four or five films. And when we watched those back, we sort of started figuring out that there was these like threads between them that we were then able to build on, which is, Isabel, you should totally take over because it's like your jam. <laughs> yeah. So I've come from a place where I'm really interested in kind of visual symbolism and kind of mythology um, to tell stories and kind of visual metaphors. So I guess um, a lot of the military stuff probably came from me, I think. Um, you know, not that we didn't discuss all aspects of the filmmaking, um, but um, so Morgana kind of presented herself in the form of a phoenix in this amazing bondage installation, which was our very first shoot. And then our second shoot was um, the burning house shoot with the ashes. So basically it was inspired by um, her mythology of herself as the phoenix. So um, we kind of retrofit that mythology um, to like looking at her identity within this facade world that she talks about. Basically it was, you know, there was this cardboard suburb constructed, um, which was kind of, representative of this kind of quite repressed mental state that she was in. So all of these um, miniatures were like, I guess, representations of her psychological landscape and her kind of internal and kind of mythological journey. So I think the phoenix with the red rope then fed into like, okay, she had this identity. This identity was burnt down um, essentially and then she was in this identity void which is her and the black ashes, you know, and the black ashes of her former life, you know, as a suburban housewife essentially. And then within these ashes there's this red rope which kind of ends up culminating in the Phoenix installation. And that red rope is like, it's like the red thread of passion. Um, it's like, you know, the, the red rope that I think is Theseus was given the labyrinth to escape from it, you know, like there was all these kind of, you know, th mythological things that we found out about later that kind of related to this idea of the red rope and the red thread as this kind of recurring image. Um, so, so yeah, it was kind of in a way retrofitted from, from her ideas. And then I think, you know, we did that initial shoot with the burning house and then obviously 
there was this feeling that it needed more coherency, like we couldn't just have one burning house shot, you know. So we kind of needed to look at, like, um, you know, how do miniatures play into the whole thing? How can we reuse these? How can we call back to this as a psychological landscape? So when she's having her breakdown, it's like she's back in that kind of depressive state and, and it's like those voices from the past are closing in on her. So we put the houses back in again, you know, in this kind of darker place. Um, when she's in Cooper Pedy as a young girl, they're all miniatures as well, all the desert scenes. Um, so that was like it was a time in her life, but it was also this psychological landscape where before gender she was free almost. And I think that that's something, you know, I really related to because I remember as a young woman, you know, up to the age of 12, before puberty, before I was sexualized, you know, I, I was really like the world was wide open. I was at my most confident, you know, I was like roughhousing, you know, and none of these kind of constructs had come on top of me. And I felt that Morgana really had that, you know, like the older she got, the more she was, you know, a young woman, the more she was sexualized, this construct of gender started to push on top of her. And I think that the, that kind of cardboard suburb landscape is a kind of reflection of that. So I think that it started as like initially started as a kind of one, one sequence thing. And then, you know, you can't just chuck some miniatures in the start of the film and then not have any callback, you know, so it seemed like a, you know, really good, um, something to make the film different, but also because I'm a stop motion animator and I come from miniatures, um, you know, it's part of my practice as a filmmaker and an artist, you know, it was a good way for me to use my skills, I guess, to, um, to kind of enhance the emotional experience for the audience compared to some of the other stuff I've done. They're not as detailed and things like that. But, um, but it, again, it was, it was, you know, a lot of the stuff that I personally do, like this is a film as a collaboration, but a lot of the stuff I personally do is a lot more, you know, um, kind of Cronenberg or Tim Burton-y kind of like somewhere between those two things. But it's about making them to suit this story kind of thing. So I wasn't going to do weird wobbly walls and like things with doors and, you know, things with eyes and stuff like that. And so, you know, the Cooper Peedy stuff was really, all the desert stuff was obviously informed by her life, but also how that fed into her psychological journey. And then the um, cardboard suburb stuff, it's actually really interesting. We um, scanned part of her wedding album. <laughs> And uh, I actually used patterns from Morgana's wedding album to construct the suburb. The texture of the grass in the the initial opening, like that big long cardboard suburb shot, not the, inside the house. Um, it's actually this. It's a velvet cover on her wedding album, so I actually scanned the velvet cover and used it to create the grass. And then all the little patterns that are in the houses are patterns from the wedding album. So I scanned and we like photoshopped them together and then built them into the houses and the streets. So it's all patterns from the wedding album and the roofs of the houses too. So there you go. Morgana, what was it like when you saw that initial fine cut in 2018? I found it actually rather overwhelming and confronting to see my story, to actually watch myself and my story unfold. I was really proud of the work, but I have to admit I was rather scared and overwhelmed by, by watching it. How did you manage to confront that and to accept it? Or did you ask for changes or, or how close to what we see now was that initial cut? 
I only asked for one one small change, and that was to remove a photograph that I didn't want included in the documentary, and, and they agreed and made the change for me. I sat on the bed with Josie watching it for the first time. We just held hands and squeezed hands, and I always wanted my story to be out there, but I think actually watching it, uh, it was like, wow, is that really me? It felt surreal. And it didn't feel like that was actually me on on screen. You star in your own films. I mean, do you ever make films that you're not in? No. Uh, I think we've made one film that I'm not in, but all the others I'm in them because I have a lot of stories to tell. And I wanted the age positive. When Petra Joy contacted me, she said, you know, you've got this great age positive, sex positive stories, which will help other women of my age, hopefully be able to start exploring their sexuality and give them the confidence to say, look, it's not too late to start exploring your sexuality again later in life. One of the most striking moments of the film for me is you outside of a theater, I think it's a theater, talking to two younger people, and they seem to be able to see themselves in you. And then I think about the next conversation you have and the next conversation, the next conversation. It must be so exhausting for you to be that center of attention. No, I actually find it very rewarding because I feel that my work is having impact on people. And I love the fact that initially I was thinking, oh, look, we'll will target the 50 plus audience but i but as as the as my films have been released i found that a lot of younger people are interested because i i remember at one q and a i heard a couple of young people sniggering a little bit when they watched me on the screen and i remember at the q and a i turned around and said look you know you can laugh you can laugh now i was young once but once you reach my age, you don't want your sexuality to to be ended. You know, you will be my age one time. You know, eventually you will be my age. And you know, do you want your sexualities to stop then? No. Josie and Isabel, what were some of the changes that you made throughout the cuts? And how did you finally get to the version that we see now? We spent maybe two to three whole summers just cutting different versions. So Isabel did a cut and then I did a cut and then we had our editor Jules come on and she did a cut. And I think that in doing all those cuts, we were able to actually find the story because I think as was talking about earlier, we, we kind of did capture this quite fragmented and over many years and it wasn't really apparent immediately like what the central story was or like, and you know, a lot of those themes that came out in the illustrative footage was stuff that we discovered in dialogue over years like it took us years like I think some of that stuff in Kubopedia and that that was like a revelation right towards the end um where we're like oh my god that's what's going on that film has been about what maybe six different films would you agree Isabel it's like it's definitely been quite a few different versions to get to where we are now yeah it was a really challenging cut because it was a single character um documentary and kind of almost single perspective like there wasn't you know a lot of other perspectives at play and you know Morgana even though she's well known in the adult industry she's not already famous so you know there's a lot of challenges to kind of create interest we were struggling to break the structure um 
like me and Josie got it to rough cut together. We did like fucking shitloads of story work, <laughs> shitloads of cuts. We, you know, we both did individual cuts. Then we came together for a really intense story, like six months. Remember Josie was sending yeah, cuts up. So, uh, producer Karina, um, Karina Astrup, um, who produced Despite the Gods, which is a great doco about Jennifer Lynch. Karina, our producer, um, was a big part of this story work. Um, so we were sending her, you know, lots of different versions of the cart and she'd give us notes. So we had like, we had, you know, one board just of story cards. Um, we had, you know, documents like short documents and longer documents. So we were doing it point by point on paper. And then we do like the roughest possible version of like how things played out. Um, in terms of like major changes, I'm trying to think like, if the whole thing's evolved so much, you know, it's, it's been about so many things, um, you know, but, um, I remember our editor, Jules DeRuvo, who's also an incredible editor, really long time, um, you know, 20 plus years experience. Um, she, um, kind of broke it. So the structure was like the first half of the film is Morgana coming to terms with her body and the second half of the film's her coming to terms with her mind kind of thing. So I think that's how she she ended up breaking it and then the phoenix ended up being like this middle point and then that there's this kind of you know so there's two kind of death and resurrections of the characters there's you know there's the identity and character death of you know the housewife to phoenix and where she's resurrected from the ashes of her former life into this kind of quite glorious um but almost a bit one-dimensional version of this hero kind of thing. And then the second half of the film, she's then resurrected from the grave at the end when she's making the film about her mental illness and this, and that, that kind of is her coming back out as a kind of more realistic and rounded version of who she is with the acceptance of all these kind of more complex um, sides of herself, you know, that she's been able to accept through her kind of creative and fil- filmmaking journey. And in some ways it kind of evolved to being not just about a pornographer but being about an artist finding their voice in a way. Jules coming on board and freeing us up to move that phoenix. I think for the most cuts we'd always naturally put that at the end because it seemed like just the most grand epic representation of Morgana. But I think by moving that further into the middle of the film, we were able to sort of tell a much more complex, nuanced portrait of Morgana. Yeah, I think it was always between where do we go to I am whole? It was like, between I am whole and the Phoenix. Like I remember moving those two things around because oh, we're like a thousand times comes. Is this where S and M like which ones, you know, kind of um And we I remember, remember we were so conscious of not wanting S and like BDSM to be just like a trope or like the thing like her downfall or to be like painted in a negative way where it's like somehow yeah. that's the thing that like fucks her up or something. Cause again, none of us feel that way at all. So we're really conscious of not wanting to paint BDSM as like the bad guy in the piece. Yeah, and also because I think some of it is quite confronting for some people and um, and also I think, you know, there was about like obviously the mental health issues and not wanting to conflate that with, you know, the porn. So it was just about like how you unravel this character. Like the most important thing was 
kind of humanizing everything really, which is, you know, like really about telling this human story where it's not all about shock factor. It's about how all of this stuff plays into the humanity of the person, you know, and that's what makes it universal in some ways. Like it weirdly might not seem like a universal film, but certainly the feedback we've had has been through for all genders, different ages, people relating to the film for different reasons. Um, so, you know, it, it's had the amount of people that could relate to it for so many different reasons makes me feel that there's a lot of humanity in the story outside of, you know, obviously the feminist kind of ideas in it. Josie, once you're done with the final, final edit of things, what's the story there? How, where's the premiere? How many festivals have you played? What's the life cycle after the movie has been locked? We got into Melbourne Film Festival, Melbourne International Film Festival. That was our international premiere, which is a, I think it's probably Australia's largest, maybe second largest film festival. And we were still, how, how long did we have, Isabel? It was like eight <sighs> weeks or something to finish everything, maybe. It was, it was pretty nuts right to in, the end. Yeah, we got in, in May, um, with a cut that was, it was pretty close to being finished. It was just the sound <laughs> wasn't quite done. It was pretty close. I remember putting it together with us. Yeah, we were in that sound room, what, a few days before, and then we actually took the hard drive and walked it to the office of the film festival, and we're like, here we go, finished, yeah. It was right down to the wire, yeah, which is exciting. Collected, collected in May, I remember, and, we were, and then, so we had, like, May, June, July, kind of, we had, like, two months. months, but we were done with the cut. It was just all the post stuff, um, you know, the, the kind of... I was so going to say, like, it, even just the end credits, we haven't done the end credits, like, we haven't done a lot of that stuff, so... <laughs> it was like, um, but then I think getting into that festival, it was just like, it was a dream, honestly, like, to have our little, you know, independent film, again, I guess we never knew that it would have appealed to, such, like, a wider audience, like, I guess we had no idea and then to be selected and have it screen in like such a, like we screened in a real fancy, the Capitol theater in Melbourne, like to have it in that institution. It was like, a, it was a dream. Honestly, it was like a whirlwind for all of us. We even got free food, which and is like, that's how you know you've made it. The Capitol theater had 650 people. We were sold out and I received a standing ovation, which just about, it just brought me to tears. I couldn't believe the love and support for this documentary from the audience was just outstanding. From there, we've, um, we won an award at the Gold Coast Film Festival, um, best independent film. We're, um, just screening at, um, Sydney International Film Festival now where we're nominated for, um, best Australian documentary, which is very exciting. We have an international premiere coming up, but we can't talk about it yet. <laughs> it's still under. Fargo, but it's very exciting and it's a very big premiere. So we're really, really excited about it. Obviously you've, you've garnered awards for this, but I'm very curious as far as the audience reaction, you know, Morgana talked about somebody sniggering at one of the, the screenings. How have the Q and A's been? How have people reacted? And I'm also curious, have you gotten different reactions depending on different festivals that you're playing at? The reaction's been very, very positive. Um, you know, I'm a highly critical person, as Josie especially knows. So I was, uh, you know, expecting a bit of backlash, I guess. Um, you know, and, um, but, um, but really so many people have 
it's a film that causes people to reach out with their own stories. I've really noticed, um, you know, and everyone makes films for different reasons. Um, but for me personally, um, connection, especially emotional connection is one of the biggest driving forces for me. So to have people say that they cried and that, you know, that they feel compelled to like, we've had messages, you know, we've had emails, we've had people come up to us at festivals, just sharing their own stories, you know, being like, Oh, you know, I started doing this when I was in my fifties or I was in this, you know, long marriage and, you know, like, and it's been really across gender and across age. And all three of us are probably always wait for this, like, backlash like whether we're going to get so sort of like anti-porn or I don't know but it hasn't come yet and maybe we haven't gone wide enough but like the only place we've ever seen that is like in the comments section of when the Daily Mail did a dodgy article on us like Daily Mail such a salacious headline I can't remember what it was but it was amazing it was just like so funny the response has been overwhelmingly positive but it really echoes the sort of response Morgana was getting when she was touring with her films, like Morgana, you could attest to this, but you would get, I mean, you still get people writing to you. Like obviously your story connects with people in a way that, um, you know, they feel compelled to reach out and, you know, share with you. Yes. I I get a lot of people that like to, to, they feel, I think it's, it's like a catharticism for them. They like to share their story with me with, with someone that they know, can understand what they've gone through and um and I actually get a lot of young people uh asking how they can get into the porn industry. Morgana, you must not have stopped making films. What are you currently working on? At the moment, I've just got a, a complete blank. I I don't have a film idea in mind at the moment. I'm just taking a break and hopefully start again next year once once we- hopefully this covid settles down a little bit and we can travel and I'll get inspired again. We just finished uh, a film we shot in 2018 or 19, a a short documentary though, um, which is now in just like festival circuit stuff. So that's the last film that we made together. Yeah. Has COVID affected the life cycle of Morgana, the documentary? It's meant Um, that we can't get drunk at festivals, which is annoying. (laughs) Um, you know, like we're having all these great screenings, like we've had like the two most prestigious festivals in Australia, but you know, they're virtual screenings. So, you know, for us as directors and for Morgana, you know, it's, 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 um, it's just meant that we've done Zoom Q and A's and we haven't been able to attend events and, um, network, you know, which is such a big part of getting your next project off the ground is going to these things physically and, you know, forming physical relationships with people. So that is frustrating. But on the other hand, we're really grateful that these festivals have continued to do these events, you know, to support filmmakers. So it's, it is a double-edged um, sword. One thing we've noticed, though, is that because uh, they are now remote, that it's actually enabled a whole bunch more people who normally wouldn't be able to make it to festivals to watch the film, though. So there is like the silver lining is the accessibility of the online festival. Mm, that's a good point. Isabel, I'm curious about you because you weren't necessarily in Berlin when uh, things were happening. Are you still working on projects while Morgana is being made? I was working on projects. Um, I think, I think I was working on my own projects, um, till, and some of them were, Josie was involved in them as well. Um, but till basically the, the work got really intense with Morgana. So I actually almost think that 
probably till about 2016, I was still, I was writing a feature, um, which I actually took to Korea to that pro, uh, you know, do you know Buchon, um, Fantastic Fest? So they've got a big kind of genre market over there. So I'd written the first draft of a horror animation kind of feature. Um, I had a short kind of horror film. I had a short stop motion. So all this stuff was in development, some with kind of producers and it kind of just, it's start, like the feature just fell through. Um, I got a bit of funding, but it didn't seem like it was happening. And so as this stuff was kind of falling through, things were really picking up with the doco. And I think that for me, you know, I loved Josie. I loved the uh, producer Karina. You know, I really loved the story. And it also was something that was achievable for us to do well, well without the funding bodies. Um, so it was kind of, it just seemed like, you know, we wanted to make a film and we could make a film, you know, so it just seems to me it was like the most viable film that we'd actually be able to finish on top of the fact that the, you know, I really liked the team. Um, yeah, so no, I did have a few projects and now I'm kind of getting back to some of those. <laughs> um, Morgana ate my life, uh, all of our lives. So I'm sure Josie's in the same situation and, and um, you know, Morgana as well, so... Did I read right that you worked on Mary and Max? Yeah, I did. Yeah. So, um, I, I started working in stop motion animation, um, commercially and as a director about 20 years ago. So it's kind of been something that I, I used to work in commercial production houses in Sydney, um, back in the day when there was a stop motion animation commercial industry in Australia. So there used to be whole production houses that just did stop motion animation. Uh, and that's part of how I got into directing my own work, um, through realizing that I wanted to tell my own stories. So I started just making my own animation um, rather than working for other people. Um, and then um, after I made my first film, I travelled overseas and was actually going to move to Canada, which is where I was born. Um, and then I got a call from um, Melanie Coombs, who was the producer of Mary and Max, asking me if I could come back and work on it. So, so I ended up moving to Melbourne for Mary and Max, actually. Um, so that was an 18-month gig, so it's very long, and um, I had a, multiple roles on it, um, but mainly in the technical kind of side of things. Morgana, where is the best place for people to actually see your movies? I have them streaming at Pink and White Label TV and Erica Last. Where's the best place for people to keep up on Morgana, the documentary, so that we can see where it's playing? So you can follow us on our social media. So we've got Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, Morgana Documentary, or our website, MorganaDocumentary.com. Well, thank you all so much. It was so wonderful talking with you. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Mark. Thanks. Bye. Bye. We are back, and I want to thank my co-hosts, Kevin and Lisa, for being on the show. So, Kevin, are you done with that dumb white guy's book yet? Okay, no. 
I'm writing a book tentatively titled From Beavis and Butthead to Deplorable Nation, Dumb White Guy, Politics and Culture in America. And every day the last chapter gets weirder and weirder. So I don't know, I don't know when we're going to be able to, um, draw our end line. I have my particular hoped for line in which the story ends at least at on a certain level this coming November. That's what I'll say. From your mouth to God's ears. And Lisa, when you're not discussing porn fuel documentaries, what keeps you busy? Uh, well, right now, trying to get uh, Cinekink's various offerings out into the world. Uh, we did have our lineup ready to go, as I was saying. Hopefully we get to have that up at least virtually sometime late summer, early fall. Of that, we always have a Best of Cinekink program, so that I'm definitely hoping to uh, tour virtually, if not physically, this year. Look for that, Cinekink, uh, C-I-N-E-K-I-N-K.com, and Twitter and Facebook. Well, it was kind of a, a double blow for you this year, because isn't Cinekink almost always around your birthday? Um, it is. I pushed it back a little later, because I was tired of having my birthday uh, <laughs> stepped on by Cinekink. But uh, yeah, it was it was a big blow, because we were, we were definitely, we were actually scouting venues just to double-check the safety precautions the night before the shutdown. But once they close Broadway, you're like, okay, at least we can quit worrying about this, and it's clear we're not going to go. For folks listening at home, I mean, Cinekink is absolutely fantastic. And if it comes to your town or anywhere near your state, definitely make the trip. See what uh, Lisa has to offer. I mean, and you've seems like you are expanding your Cinekink on the road every year. I'm hearing about new venues. Like last year, was it this year or last year you went to Toledo? And I was such a slouch that I didn't make the 50-minute drive. I'm a horrible person. We're now in Toledo, so hopefully we'll be back there. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.